This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. It is for educational purposes only. Please consult with your doctor, therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist for more information. Before we get started, um, I just want to ask everyone who's listening, if you find the podcast or this episode helpful, please share, so like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever you're listening. Uh, leave a review if you can. It really helps to get the podcast out to whoever it can help. And um, the easiest way for you guys to help me get more listeners is uh to share it with people that you think it'll help. So um, I really appreciate it. And um, on to the show. This is the Cherished You Podcast. I am your host, Rama. Welcome back to the Cherished You Podcast. Um, So this is going to be a start of a series of episodes where I'm going to touch on, um, I guess what they technically qualify, I guess it says symptoms of ADHD. Um, But as I explained in the last episode, I don't think... I don't believe in uh, calling ADHD a disorder. Um, It's a normal presentation of diversity in our brain as humans. Not everyone's gonna have the same brain. It makes sense that some of us would not. It also makes sense that given our environment and how it's constructed, that these brains would have a harder time um, dealing with the amount and intensity of trauma that's put upon us than quote unquote neurotypical brains. And so with the neurodivergence portion, um, a lot of the stuff that I'm going to talk about are, are go it like in literature, in training, in, in the world currently is what, um, psychiatrists and psychologists would call symptoms of ADHD. Really, they're just adapt. I think they're really just it's a behavior adaptations for people who live, who literally see and function in the world differently than everybody else around them. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So today's was I'm going to start off with is one that I think um, is difficult to both live with and also experience as somebody who um, is relating to somebody who is neurodivergent. Um, and that's rejection sensitive dysphoria. Really with uh, this, it, and again, I, when I do the research on these things, I always like to, I like to com- compare my own experience, my own definition of these with what's in the literature, for lack of a better term. And it is funny how uh, scientists love to parse their words, and they really, I think a lot of this stuff really just is hard to understand because it's not studied with the 
I don't think it's studied correctly, I guess is um, the best way to say it. Every time anything is studied in a study, it's there's always some flaws within the study. Number one flaw in every study is going to be the bias. Is you're, we're usually neurodivergence and is, is approached with through the lens of there is neurotypical, which is what's accepted, what works well in the society the way it's currently constructed, and then there's everybody else. So whether that's whether you're get diagnosed as autistic or ADHD or some other combination thereof, or whatever new term they're going to come up with to to justify these new brains, um, a there's a pathology to it. They're making it look and sound as if there is something wrong with this group of people because they don't look and function like this other group of people within the systems that we have. So these studies have this intense bias that's baked into every one of them. Even if it is a double-blind, quote-unquote, perfect study where all the variables are accounted for, which is impossible, and everything was done by the book, and placebos were not, had not interacted with Medicaid, and all this other jazz, right? Even with all that taken into account, it's impossible to get rid of the underlying bias that exists when doctors are studying these kinds of conditions. My goal is to, is to remove that bias as much as possible, understanding that a lot of these quote-unquote conditions exist because we are not allowed to function in the world however we see, however is best for us. Um, there's certain sets of rules and guidelines and expectations that are set forth for us, and that's what's accepted as quote-unquote normal, and anybody else who falls outside of that is not normal. And like I said before, your normal is going to be relative. If you live in a community where smoking and drinking is really common, it makes sense that you would think that eventually your, your life route is going to take you to a place where you will be smoking and drinking as well. If you grew up in an environment where that wasn't the case, you will find it odd that people think that that's normal, that it's normal to live in to a certain point and then eventually you start smoking and drinking. If you've never done that, nobody around you has ever done that and you were never that was never an expectation put on you, your baseline normal is different. Right or wrong is irrelevant here because right or wrong depends on your context. When and, and the reason this comes up a lot with rejection-sensitive dysphoria is that by the name itself, you can tell that this, 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 this quote-unquote symptom is a, um, is a internalized perception of what is happening to you, what you are experiencing. And you are, your, your brain is wired to look out for rejection. You are incredibly sensitive to rejection. You feel really intense pain and your emotional response is very exaggerated because your brain is interpreting feedback, even if it is of the critical sort, um, much more intensely than somebody who either is more emotionally regulated or quote unquote neurotypical. That goes back to, well, if you don't do what is considered normal for you to be accepted, then rejection is going to show up for you really hard. With neurodivergence, I think one of the best ways that this can be described is what most, most people understand as masking. You, you, you have like this 
persona you embody while you're around other people. And then when you get home, you can like put it all down and be like, okay, this is just me. And as somebody who had to deal with the, who did this for a really long time and didn't understand where it was coming from, um, I, I, like, I would always be exhausted at the end of the day. And it was this exhaustion that kind of never really went away until I started to figure out what was happening to me. What I was doing, which is what I, which is what I learned to do in order to survive being rejected by my, my immediate community, whether that was with my family, even though it was a cult-like a cult narcissistic family, whether that was my work environments, all different ones of them, and whether that was in college, whether that was in um, med school, all of these different phases of my life where I've had to, like I would literally transform into a new person. And a lot of that had to do with trying to regulate this phenomenon that existed within me, which was I was incredibly sensitive to rejection. Now, when I was doing research for this, because I wanted to see, again, I wanted to see what the literature said and what doctors had come up with and what limited research was done around this. Um, a couple of things I saw that I didn't agree with. One was, um, I think it was either the Mayo Clinic or the Cleveland Clinic that said that this response was not due to trauma. I find that really, really hard to believe, A. And B... It is really hard for, I think, anybody to say for sure that any mental health, brain-related, personality-type-related uh, behavior is not trauma-related because we are all traumatized. The world is inherently traumatizing. So you can't say that unless you are able to study people in a world where no trauma exists. Only then can you say, okay, this particular thing is not due to trauma. Until that happens, I do not believe it. Um, the name itself lends to the fact that it's an adaptive characteristic. Um, it, also, it also is something that um, it points to severe childhood trauma. Because why would you get why would why would your brain be predisposed to feeling rejection so intensely and specifically rejection you are taking you're taking an information from somebody else you're feeling rejected and then your 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 brain then proceeds to have this very abnormally explosive response to that perceived rejection that is almost tailor-made for what happens to, to babies when their caregivers are not responsive to them or when their caregivers are responsive in a violent manner to them. It, you can see the correlation right there. Now, is it true? I don't know. Like I said, it's really hard to study something that is um, kind of complex to be able to study on to begin with and when you have an inherent biases where you are trying to call something a disorder when really is it just an adaptation is it a dis is something a disorder if you if it has helped you survive up until now 
Now, the one character, like the one thing that happens with RSD, and again, this a lot of this is my own experience and my clients who have been through something similar, is that uh, emotional regulation is really, really important. Now, emotional regulation is important across the board. It is hard to regulate when you feel rejection very acutely, but it, you also wouldn't feel rejection so acutely if you were able to emotionally regulate. So there is this chicken and egg thing, like which one comes first? And whenever you are stuck in like that kind of a dichotomy, it really is, if you do one, it'll help the other, and if you do the other, it'll help the, it, like, it kind of helps, it's kind of like, it, like it, it's a push and pull thing. So like, yeah, they could be clashing, but at the same time, if you work on one half, the other half kind of starts to resolve itself and gives you different answers to be able to help regulate the other half. So like, there is this kind of like seesaw and this push-pull kind of dynamic that's happening. And in, in my experience, what I, what I kind of have figured out is that there are certain things that make the RSD worse um, and better. Like it ha there are certain ways that I, 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 I've been able to help it. And then there are certain places where I still struggle, but um, it's, there's still kind of like room for improvement on that end. Um, one thing is my menstrual cycle has a huge, huge impact on how, how the RSC shows up. Now this, again, I, I'm mostly talking to women because that's mostly my audience. And that's important to understand because our menstrual cycles are very, very powerful and hormones in generally are really, are, are, are really powerful force that exists within our bodies. And our cycle has, has a lot to do with our hormone supply and production and all that jazz. And then there's also like the baseline neurotransmitters that a neurodivergent brain produces is different than the baseline neurotransmitters that a neurotypical brain might produce. So if we go with the theory that there is um, a dopamine deficiency, I put that in quotes, um, with neurodivergence, again, when I, I'll get to this in a future episode, but I, I, I kind of seesaw back and forth on that one too. But let's go with the fact that there's a lower, like, like dopamine is a factor with neurodivergent brains, whether there's too much or too little, or it's sensitive or insensitive, however you want to phrase that, but there's a dopamine issue. So you have that, that wanes, the, your baseline dopamine production and sensitivity is going to wax and wane depending on the phase of your cycle. That may have a, but that may be a factor in how the RSD shows up. Are you able to take criticism better during the early part of your cycle? And then when the later, like the later end of your cycle, like, you know, what most people consider PMS, when that shows up all of a sudden, everything you're like, you'll just fly off a handle. You'll feel it really intensely because of your hormonal and in, internal hormonal environment that just changes your brain's brain chemistry, which then affects how what happened two weeks ago would not, you would not have the same reaction as you would now. 
hopefully that makes some kind of sense. Um, also, there, the one thing to note with RSD, because rejection sensitivity does exist, just generally, with mood disorders, personality disorders, they exist. Again, things that I think that are fundamentally rooted in childhood trauma or trauma of some sort, but most of the time it's childhood trauma, especially coming out of a narcissistic family. So my cycle has an impact on how I see RSD. RSD may, you may be rejection sensitive. Also, if you have a core morbid condition along with being neurodivergent, if you're neurodivergent and then you have borderline personality disorder, we're just going to go with the names for now because again, I have a whole other spiel on whether or not there, any of these are disorders. Is that going to make it better or worse? Most likely it's going to make it worse. You're, or it would be, with BPD, with borderline, you are you have exaggerated emotional responses as it is. Of course, it makes sense that you would have an even more exaggerated response if you were being rejected, which triggers that core abandonment wound that borderlines have. <coughs> and again, all of this kind of connects back to, are we really gonna say it doesn't come from trauma if, if your trauma was neglect as a child? If you're, if your parents were just not, or if your, you know, your caretakers were just not emotionally available, that can, that, that neglect can cause a lot more pain than even being hit in, for some people. And I know that's true for me. I was emotionally neglected as a child. I still really respond abnormally so to when I feel emotionally neglected now. Now, there's a lot of factors that can change how I respond, but I find it hard to believe that if I had had emotionally available parents that that rejection sensitivity would be as strong. Because if I had emotionally available parents, would they have recognized I was neurodivergent early on in my life? Would that have changed the entire trajectory of my life because I would have learned to accept myself who, for who I was way earlier on than, than when I did? All because I had emotionally available parents. Real, like, there's so much to this, and that's why, like, part of the frustration, both for me as a person who's going through healing and kind of figuring it out how, how you know, as I go, and then trying to help people on their path with this, a lot of this stuff is unknown. And if it kind of feels like sometimes I'm walk, like talking around in circles, it's because I am. Uh, I'm not, you know, trying to sound smarter than I am or anything like that. There, this is the, there is no, there is no set answer to any of this. Even if there was like 80 scientific studies that could have backed up what I say, it still doesn't make it 100% true. We don't know what the truth is. It's just our experience. And all I'm trying to do here is to validate your experience, however awkward and weird it may have been so that you can learn how to do that for yourself because like we do try to validate ourselves by seeing our experience reflected back to us from other people i think that's why social media is as um addictive as it is we see parts of ourselves that either we reject or that we want to accept there you know and again those are two different things and 
that's what prompts a lot of us to stay engaged on those platforms, why those platforms are so popular. But it's also important to understand that at the end of the day, especially when you have a childhood trauma you know, foundation, no matter how externally validated you are, you have to learn how to do it for yourself. And that's one of the things that really honestly has helped me regulate the RSD, the rejection sensitive dysphoria. Emotional regulation has happens to me in, in phases, in, in pockets of time. Um, I, it's something I work on all the time, but I don't really see progress with it um, for like months at a time. And then all of a sudden I'll see a lot of progress in a short amount of time. And then there's kind of like this lull. And that's kind of how it works. Um, it takes a while for your nervous, your nervous system to adjust to any new practices you've put in place, um, any new rituals you've put in place, any of that. But then when you do see it, it kind of comes out, it feels like it comes out of nowhere. Um, but really it's just because you've been putting in the work and then all of a sudden there's a situation that arises and all of a sudden you're handling it much differently than you would have before you started doing whatever the last set of practices were. The emotional regulation works like that for a lot of people, um, mostly because there's the adjustment in seasons. So what I like, you know, what you would do in the winter time is going to be different than what you do in the springtime to regulate your nervous system. Um, you're going to experience a different array of emotions in during the time, during the holidays and you might maybe in the summer. Uh, this is just an example. So when you're, when you're trying to figure out how, like when you're working on emotional regulation, it can feel like for a lot of it that you're kind of stuck in this quagmire where like everything feels like shit. Nothing feels like it's going right. You feel sad about everything and getting pissed off at everyone. And then it's like two, three months later, this like fog lifts and all of a sudden you're like, it's like, oh, and I've always, Whenever this has happened to me, I always discounted my own effort and was just like, oh, the season's changed, so I'm better now. When really, it turns out, it was just, it takes about two to four months for new changes when consistently applied for your nervous system to adapt to. It just takes that long. And sometimes it's a little bit faster than others. Certain things work better than others, but you kind of don't know what's going to work for you until you try it. And there's a lot of trial and error. So this, that's why this stuff takes time. And emotional regulation helps me. It, it helps me um, kind uh, question my rejection sensitive dysphoria in a more um, cognizant manner. So really what this means like is I feel like I I'm more able to engage with my frontal lobe and being able to ask questions to my experience and my feelings to be able to work my way out of it rather than when sometimes it feels like well no my feelings are the absolute truth and this is like this is everything all the thoughts and the 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 rumination and the the negativity that comes with RSD, um, all of that is true. And that's actually a, a point I think I missed early on when I was originally uh, describing RSD that I wanted to point out as to why this makes it different than just rejection sensitivity that you, that we, I think is, is pretty normal. 
I think. I think that's a normal response to have in a society where having a community of people that you feel have your back is kind of hard to come by. Rejection-sensitive dysphoria is also accompanied by this, not just like this intense feeling of pain when you feel rejected, but it also has these incredibly um, negative thought patterns that accompany it. And the best way I can describe it is it's really... It's like it's real. It's a, it's like suicide adjacent, is what it feels like to me. I feel the same. I have the same stories going through my mind when I am feeling rejected, as when I when I was suicidal. And for the longest time, and by, and by the longest time, I mean this past year, was the first time I was able to really get to a point where I could differentiate between rejection-sensitive sensitive dysphoria and suicidal ideation for myself. There is a, uh, there's an underlying feeling of despair and hopelessness that comes with suicide ideation that is not there with the rejection-sensitive dysphoria, at least for me. And that, I think, is an important piece of the puzzle to put in because when I am working through RSD stuff and I get to the point where I'm like looking at the stories that my brain is giving me around this perceived feeling of rejection, I, I can see that like, yes, it is incredibly negative. Yes, I have these intense feelings of low self-worth and um, low self-identity and like not really knowing who I am or if anything I'm doing is right and everything and if anything's ever going to be good enough and all of that bullshit that comes with those feelings of rejection and the intensity of them but there is not that underlying despair and hopelessness where I feel like it's never going to get better like no matter what I do it's not like like what's the point who the hell cares nobody would care if I wasn't here tomorrow. That doesn't exist for me with RSD. That did exist for me. That was actually the driving force behind my suicide ideation during the times in my life when I have been suicidal. Does that apply to everybody? I honestly do not know. This is not something that ever came up with my clients, so I can't say having um, that I have talked, I've been able to talk to them and see what they think. But if you do have thoughts on it, I would love to hear it because this is just my experience. And I'm not saying my experience is concrete at all. I, don't, I do not believe that in the slightest. But because the RSD can be so overwhelming and can last for a while, and by the way, it mimics suicide ideation a lot, especially if you have a, another mental health um, problem on top of the neurodivergence, it's very, very likely that the, and those other conditions, whether it's bipolar, anxiety, or depression, like the, the negative stories that come with those, or mental stories that come with those conditions, can affect the, our perception of our rejection. So it is, really hard, it is sometimes really hard to tell whether you're depressed or is it just this really intense feeling of rejection that actually isn't even true. That's also really important to understand. Um, 
the feelings aren't true. And as somebody who really struggles through periods of my time, but the periods of my year are kind of consumed with, well, my feelings are absolutely telling me the truth. They're not, especially when you have childhood trauma to deal with. Most of the times, your feelings are not telling you the truth. They're telling you something's happening, but whether or not it's the concrete truth requires cerebral analysis of what's going on. You are not going to get there until you have felt the feeling. Then you can go back and look and see whether or not where the feeling came from, what triggered the feeling is actually the truth or is it just, is it a trigger and it's just mimicking something that happened to you a long time ago. And that's a really super important distinction. Um, trying to see if there was anything else I wanted to talk about with RSD. Um, I did mention, and I'll say this again, um, it is, I, even though some of the literature just say that it's not a trauma response, I don't believe that's true. Um, I do think at, in, in society as a whole, it's helpful to have people who are ultra sensitive to how criticism or feedback is given to them. Um, because again, it doesn't make sense that everybody would be at the same level of sensitivity. I don't think a society is going to survive very long if that's the tr if that's the case. There are going to be people on the low end. There are going to be people. Most people are going to be in this middle end, and then there's going to be people at the edge, um, at the other end where you're super hypersensitive. Um, a lot of it is a chicken and egg thing. Like, did did are you are you hypersensitive because you were traumatized or? Um, are you gonna? Would have you? Would you have been hypersensitive regardless? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. There's no way to answer that question. But let's just assume both are true. When in doubt, both are true. So you have to just kind of see what's in front of you, realize where you fall on that spectrum, and then do what's necessary to, necessary for you to take care of yourself. Um, I know for me, when I feel really, really strong emotions, the best thing I can do for myself is um, is let the let myself feel the feeling, and you know, after it passes and after I can stop all the negative storytelling and the ruminating and the overthinking and the all of that jazz kind of passes, give myself some space, do something fun, then come back to it and see what was actually happening here. Let me take a look at it now. And that's really what I'm doing there is I am getting myself as regulated as possible before I go back and kind of dig through the mock of my brain and see what it has to say. Uh, thanks so much for listening today, guys. I really do appreciate it. Um, and I'll be back again next week with a different neurodivergent characteristic. And is it trauma or is it evolution. We don't know. We'll find out. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Cherished You podcast. If you could please leave me a review, um, subscribe and share. It really helps get the podcast out to those who it will help the most.